0: Doctor, can you tell us how you came to develop the the, the notion of nonviolent communication? How was that related to your upbringing in in Detroit as a a Jewish child in in an environment that was probably quite difficult? Uh,
1: Not just uh, the being Jewish, but being white. Uh, My family moved to Detroit just in time for the race riots of 1943. Uh, we couldn't go outdoors for, for four days. Uh, about 30 people were killed in our neighborhood. So, as a boy, I got a very powerful education that this was a world in which your safety was in danger for things such as skin color and your name and other factors like that. So, this got me open to the question what gets into people that an allows them to want to hurt people who are different. So that started it. And I was fortunate to see other people that I saw that didn't get caught in this. I saw other people like an uncle of mine who came to help my mother care for my paralyzed grandmother every day. I saw him cleaning her up with a smile on his face as though cleaning her up was a gift to him. So I saw that there were two kinds of smiles in this world. That I think is our natural smile as human beings when we're nurturing life. And the other kind of smiles when people are creating pain in others. And I wondered how come some people get the smiles from contributing to life and some through hurting others. And that started my career.
0: Were you involved with the civil rights struggle in the 50s and 60s? With it? the process of desegregation. Is that what led to the foundation of your of your center?
1: Those questions really were the start of it. What led what leads to this? And I picked clinical psychology to study, hoping that I would find the answer there to what leads people to behave in such violent ways and differences. And what I found in clinical psychology was something that was part of the problem. I saw that it made the mistake of thinking that the violence on the planet was a result of some mental illness. And uh, my studies led me to see that I wish it was that simple. I started to see that, no, the the violence that contributes to this problem we have dealing with differences is a result of social systems that had been on the planet for quite a while, educating us in ways that create this violence. So I wanted to study, instead of clinical psychology, I turned my attention to the other direction, to study those people who were living in a way that I thought human beings were intended to to live. I wanted to start from the positive, instead of looking for an illness that could explain things. I wanted to look for people who were educated in a way that helped them to enjoy giving to other people, no matter what the people around them were doing. And it was from studying such people that I saw that they used a different language than the one I had been educated to use. They used a the language of life, a language that helped them to connect the life that's going on within themselves and other people. Whereas I saw the language that I had been taught was a language of domination, one that was part of the problem. So I started to learn from these people who were living as I liked, the language that they used. How did they use power? And I pulled together the process that I now teach from observing such people. Then after I graduated from the university, I was using what I had learned, which I now call nonviolent communication, or sometimes we call it life-serving communication. I was using it largely with families. And uh, I was pleased with how valuable the families found it. But one of the families that came to see me, the the father, was working with a civil rights project that was trying to get black and white groups together, working together to deal with racial issues. And he said, I think this training would be very helpful to us in helping black and white groups get together. And uh, would you come and uh, and use it with our, our staff? I did. They found it very helpful, and one thing led to another. And then for about the next 13 years, this would have been from about 1965 to about 1978. For that period of time, I was doing most of my work, was involved in in race relations. The federal government would ask me to go into some communities that were having a lot of violence and try and get the black and white groups to connect better with each other. A lot of schools wanted me to work with them in showing them how to create a curriculum that increased the students' respects for diversity rather than prejudicial attitudes. And I had a good opportunity back in the beginning of that experience to work with a street gang in St. Louis. And I formed a very close connection with some of the street gang members who were very helpful to me in learning how to translate our training in a way that would be good in this movement. And some of those street gang members traveled with me throughout the United States during those 13 years, working in some of these hot spots. Did you meet with uh,
0: Dr. Martin Luther
1: King? No, I never met with Dr. Uh, King.
0: Were you involved with any of the leaders or of the struggle for civil
1: rights? Oh, over the years, and it continues to now. I certainly work a lot with people who worked with him, and. There's a member of our workshop now that uh, has worked with him. Uh, So uh, I've, over the years, had a very close connection with that movement, but I never met Dr. King.
0: When you developed the the principles for nonviolent communication, was the example of King or or maybe of Gandhi uh, prominent on your mind?
1: Yes. uh, When I said I was looking at the people who were living in the way that I liked, it was more that that I was looking at, these people uh, and how they communicated. What was their spirituality? More than uh, actually their tactics. I was much more interested in how did they think? How did they communicate? What enabled them to have this, this vision? That's what appealed to me about these people, trying to figure out how they could become the kind of people they were, even though they were in the midst of all the violence. You Just to find what we
0: are trying to... to resolve with a with documentary how, you know, some people have those special qualities that you just described. You know, that's exactly our purpose here.
1: One of the most, I love my work. It's a, it's a blessing in so many respects. For example, I get to work with people in about 30 countries now, and the people I'm working with are these special people who have risen above the, the violence of what's going on around them. But above all the things that I like about my work, it's when I ask these people the question that you're interested in, which is, what helped you develop, what you've developed that helped you to keep this vision of what human beings are about, even in the space of all the violence you've been exposed to? And I love what they tell me. I learn so much from what they tell me. For example, I was talking to a woman from Somalia, and when I heard what she had been through, I could hardly believe that she could maintain the warmth and the caring that she did. And we were sitting uh, in front of a fire one night, and I asked her, what helped you? Did you get a gift from your parents that would help you to become the person you are in in spite of all of that? She immediately said, my father, and I said, could you tell me one thing he did that helped you with that? I know it's probably thousands, but what's one thing he did? She said. Well, every day uh, we had to go four kilometers to go into the uh, the city to get water, and he would ask me to go with him. Oh, so I said the fact that he cared enough for your company that he wanted you to go. She thought for a moment, no, Marshall, it wasn't that, she said. But on the way into town, no matter how many people we passed, he would stop and talk with them. Oh, I said, so that was it. He showed you this friendliness toward other people. She stopped and thought, No, that wasn't it, really. Then tears came to her eyes, so I knew she was getting closer to it. She said, Marshall, it was just the way he looked at people when they talked. She said, in the years since, when I saw the people doing this violence to one another, the vision kept coming back of my father and just the way he would be present to people. And that 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 kept fresh in myself the vision of what we're really about. It's amazing how much that characteristic comes up when I'm asking people this question. A Palestinian colleague of mine told me the same thing, that when he would come in from the house, from the streets after horrible things were happening out there, his family would just listen, just be present to him, and how that helped him through the rough time. So yeah, I like to ask that question. And this is much of our training, this presence, part of empathy that we we teach. it confirms just how powerful that is for me.
0: Actually, I was just going to ask you about empathy. Is that the or compassion? I don't know I think you use both both words. Uh, what are the basic concepts of, of non nonverbal
1: communication? The basic concept is compassion, but now we have to define that because in many countries it's not too clearly not an easy word to translate. To me, compassion is joy at other people's joy borrow Meister Eckhart's definition from several centuries ago. It's what I consider the natural for human beings to enjoy enriching the lives of others. So that characteristic of human beings, where we enjoy contributing to people's well-being, is what I would call compassion. And our training shows how to make the connections with human beings that allows that just to take place naturally. So part of that is empathy to empathically connect with what's alive in another person, regardless of how they're speaking. So when people, even if they're screaming insults at you, we show people how not to get caught up in that, how to empathically connect with the life that's behind the message. And then the other part of our training shows that when we respond, to respond from the heart by telling people what's alive in us without ever using any language that insults, criticizes, or demands.
0: It seems that uh, most of the work would almost start on the language, changing the language that people uh, use. Is that something you come across that you have to deal with? Uh, The the way people, because people structure their faults around language. uh,
1: Exactly. So the way I believe that oppressive cultures educate people to maintain the the oppressive cultures is largely through language. So, for example, if you want to have domination, you need to teach people to think in moralistic concepts such as right, wrong, good, bad, normal, abnormal, and teach them that the authorities know which of those words is which. So, who's good, who's evil, who's right, who's wrong. So you shape people's mentality that way and then they make good little boys and girls and good little citizens in domination structures, and then you also need that language to justify power over tactics. By power over tactics, I'm referring to punishment, reward, guilt, shame, and the concepts of duty and obligation. These are very destructive ways for human beings to interact, but you justify them through language. If the other person is bad, they deserve to suffer. Oh, yes, language is a very important component of oppressing or liberating people.
0: Uh, you came up with two wonderful images, uh, two symbols or two icons. I, I don't know what word you use. Yes. The, the jackals and the giraffes. Yes.
1: Uh, yes. 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 Uh, the jackal we use is a symbol of what we call life-alienated communication. Communication that instead of helping people connect at the heart level, gets them disconnected. It gets them to think in terms of enemy images. Who's right? Who's wrong? Who's selfish? Who's at fault? You see. I apologize to the real jackals, because actually I like all dogs, but I just happened to find the word jackal funny, so that's why I've picked that that image. My ecologist friends wish I didn't do it. But I do everything in my power and my training to indicate that it's just an image and that the real animals I'd like to preserve. And I use giraffe as uh, the symbol of nonviolent communication because giraffes have the largest heart of any land animal. And giraffes have the largest heart of any land animal. Oh, excuse me, I I use the symbol of giraffe because we call our language a language of the heart and giraffes have the largest heart of any land animal. So uh, I started to use these symbols uh, a few years ago and find them very powerful teaching aids in some areas. If the people I'm working with have gone through a lot of suffering, uh, they don't want to make light of it by thinking of uh, the people who've killed their families as a jackal. So we use it sometimes and sometimes we don't. How did the
0: image of a jackal
1: about it? really wasn't anything to do with this poor animal why I picked it. Uh, just the word sounds funny. And so one time I said to a woman who wanted me to work with her relationship with her husband. I'd worked on that relationship a long time with them. And I said, you're not tired working on that jackal? And she thought this was so funny, you know, to think of her husband as a jackal. Just because she laughed at it, I started to play with it in my training. And I found out that the participants. Uh, they learn faster with such an image. So I got this puppet, and then I had to look for another one to go be the other side of things. So they're very effective from teaching standpoints, but dangerous if they perpetuate the kind of thinking we're trying not to get into, right, wrong, good, bad. So in the course of the training, we show people not to allow this image to get off into that thinking of good and evil again. And we do this by making clear that there are no jackals in the the sense that we're using it. We say that jackals are simply giraffes with a language problem. So we show that if you put on these ears, you see, giraffe ears, no matter how the other person communicates, it's really giraffe. Because we learn to look into the heart. And when you look into the heart, you see no jackals. You just see a human being in pain. So if uh, we teach uh, children, uh, for example, I was working with some eighth graders, and uh, they were saying to me, well, Marshall, what do you do when your teacher says a jackal thing to you such as, don't you listen? I've explained this three times. Okay, so we show them how to put on the giraffe ears, and we show them if they put on the giraffe ears, they won't hear a criticism. They'll hear the pain in the other person. They'll hear, so teacher, are you frustrated and uh, you'd like some understanding when you express things? You'd like our pure attention? So we just taught the students how to do that, you see. We can teach students to do that pretty easily if they're five, six, seven years old. The older people get, the more they're taught to put on these ears, jackal ears. See, if you put on a jackal ears, and if you put these ears on inward, as unfortunately we educate many people to do. Then if a teacher says something to you like, don't you listen, what's wrong with you? Then you don't look in the other person's heart to see what pain they're feeling. You take it personally. You think there's something wrong with yourself. You feel humiliated. You feel like P P P T, pretty poor protoplasm, poorly put together, you see. How horrible to have these ears on in a world where many people speak the language of jackal. So the drug companies like it because when you wear these ears facing inward, you're going to be depressed a good deal of your life. You'll want a lot of antidepressant medication.
0: Would you say that in this world the, the jackals are the dominant
1: species? As I'm using the image, I'm sad to say that yes, uh, it's very dominant throughout the planet. That's why we, I believe we have the violence that we do. Uh, but it's not the only way of thinking and living. Uh, Ruth Benedict, the anthropologist, has shown in her research that there are many what, I, what she calls synergic cultures, what I, fo- I call giraffe cultures. There are many of them that have escaped this domination training that's existed for 5,000 years, according to the theologian Walter Wink. Uh, so unfortunately, this is uh, the, the most frequent Uh, way that people are educated in the world to think in this good, bad, right, wrong. And unfortunately, even the beautiful religions have been interpreted by people with jackal ears in a way to maintain this domination and this violence. Uh, We work with many people within the church that have a totally different interpretation of their religion. They have giraffe ears. They can read the same scriptures and get such a different picture from it. My Palestinian colleagues cannot imagine how anybody can kill in the name of Islam. We have a colleague in uh, Sri Lanka, a Jesuit priest, uh, uh, who's working hard, risking his life to bring the two groups together that are at war there. So uh, we work with a lot of people from the basic religions, but who have, uh, they're in the minority, unfortunately, within these religions.
0: What about the political sphere? How, how the how do the concept translate uh, with uh,
1: politicians, uh, world leaders? Uh? Well, the world leaders um, I think are the same as any other group. Uh, there is a percentage of them that I think have the kind of development we're interested in people developing. They, they'll they have trouble getting elected to top positions, but they there are people in the political life. So what we do in each country is we try to get this 5% or so of the population that have this different consciousness. We try to bring them together out of the consciousness that Margaret Mead, the anthropologist, points out when she says most social change occurs when you just get a few people of similar vision together. You see, So we try to go into countries and bring together these people that share a common vision, share our training with them, and uh, work with them to see how it can make the most contribution toward peace in that area. So for example, ten years ago, 1990, I went to Israel and Palestine and found a team from both sides that each uh, have the same vision that was very much in harmony with that of our training. They saw our training would be very helpful to them and I've trained them very well so they could train others and we have seen quite a spread in our training in the region in the last 10 years. We now have in Israel, for example, about 400 schools that are what we call giraffe schools. And all this has happened in the last three years. We got one school started three years ago. It was doing so well that uh, the European Union gave us money to get four more started in Palestine, four in Israel, and a couple in Serbia and some in Italy. Those schools went so well that the new president in Israel, Barak, made the woman who was the head of our first school there chairperson of a National Commission to prevent violence in the schools. So that's why now we have so many schools in Israel uh, where the teachers and the students and the parents all have been taught our process of communication And the schools are radically restructured so that the teachers work in partnership with the students, not dominating and controlling them. And the students work as an interdependent community, supporting each other's learning, not competing with one another. And what really touches me, uh, to mediate for the purpose of helping resolve the conflict. But if the chief would like us to train people from both uh, sides, we would be glad to teach them how to do this so you don't have to invite me in if you have another conflict. So uh, that's what I'd at least like to see in in answer to your question in Israel and Palestine. Get the people together for this kind of mediation. Now, we see how many times they've been brought together and things don't get any better, because what goes on in those official bringing people together is just a a play to the press. But what happened, look look at how far they got when this Norwegian uh, person informally grabbed the leader, Sadat uh, and uh, uh, Begin, and pulled them into his uh, private chambers in Norway, and then one weekend got further in the peace effort than all of this official talks. So that, that's what I would like to see done there, to get the people into the kind of mediation where we can really get down to a human level and not just posturing for the press.
0: The, the ultimate goal of nonviolent communication is
1: reconciliation. It's one of the ways that people use our training in reconciliation. But today, for example, uh, I have been working with a group on social change, and that means creating the social structures that uh, preserve peace, that serve life. Uh, we're, we don't want to just limit ourselves to reconciliation because our present structures create un- non-ending messes between people. They make people enemies. So what we really need are to create structures that support life rather than create this division to begin with. So yes, until we get those structures in place, we do need to do a lot of reconciliation work. But we're interested in primary prevention, which means radically transforming the domination structures on our planet. A domination structure being defined as a, a government where a few people dominate many for their own their own advantages. See, most of our structures, unfortunately, look on the surface like a democracy, but they're basically a few people dominating many for their own advantage.
0: Now, you've had experiences in communities that have been torn apart uh, by, by divisions, by downsides, uh, and things such as uh, Yugoslavia and Rwanda. Can you tell us a little bit about
1: those? Yes, uh, in both of those areas. Uh, Rwanda Yugoslavia uh, I try to find the people who have the same vision that we like to support a life-serving vision and who haven't been caught up in the violence and I was very fortunate in both areas to find such people and then I asked them to help me organize and bring together similar people very often they already have such groups organized and so we train them in our process, and we then work with them in figuring out what strategies would be the best. Where where would our training be the most helpful in creating peace in this region? So my colleague in Rwanda, himself a Hutu who was married to a Tutsi, he said, Marshall, we have such violence uh, going to happen in our country. This was a few months before the genocide started. And his choice was to bring together a team of human rights workers. And he said, could we train them to reach out in the country and train people rapidly so that we could get to parents and teachers to not perpetuate this prejudicial way in which children are taught to think about the other other tribe. So that was our plan, to first get together a group, which he already did, have me train them, I started. And then our plan was to reach out into the homes and the schools to teach the next generation a way that we hoped would prevent the violence. But we four months later, the it started. My friend was killed. Uh, we still have a project there of some of the survivors. Uh, it's going very slowly.
0: But you've had an experience in Algeria or some of the people you trained.
1: Uh, I haven't myself been to Algeria, but we have uh, trained an Algerian woman who has done... Uh, who did heroic work going back there and using our training in showing parents different ways than corporal punishment for dealing with children and uh, different ways of respecting women and giving women more rights. Uh, But she went a little quickly for the times and uh, her life was in danger so we had to help her get out and she's been living now the last four years in Belgium. But while in Belgium she's been training People from Algeria in uh, in exile, and uh, I have uh, trained a lot of Algerians in exile in Paris.
0: Now, are the problems there essentially the, the, the fundamentalist uh, movement uh, using violence to to t- t- take over the country? Is that what she was dealing with?
1: Uh, she was dealing with how some people are interpreting Islam. Uh, and on the basis of their interpretation, uh, not having women the rights that she would like to see women have. So she wanted to be respectful to their religion. She wanted them to see that many people uh, interpret the religion differently. Uh, However, um, she was judged by them as uh, deserving of punishment and death, and so that's why we had to help her get out. These extremists uh, exist in every country. They exist in the United States. In every country that I know of, uh, these extremes exist. And uh, unfortunately, given that we come out of histories of domination structures, they're often very appealing to be leaders in these structures. They fit very much with the structures.
0: Have you found leaders of giraffes as opposed to jackals?
1: Yes, uh, in every country a, there are leaders. that Now, many of the, the leaders that I work with are not necessarily in the government, but uh, I think that we look in history that many of the, the leaders have not been in the government, like Dr. King and Gandhi were great leaders. So it's more that kind of leader that I'm usually working with in each country. Like uh, in Palestine, I work with some very powerful, wonderful men who are very powerful leaders. Um, I work with people like that in Israel. I, we have a woman in uh, Serbia, a very powerful leader. Um, I brought, incidentally, in 20 Serbians and 20 Croatians together in Hungary uh, during the war between Serbia and Croatia. And One of the women uh, that helped me bring that together, uh, a couple years ago in Serbia, got our training to over 30,000 school children. She's since gone to Macedonia and herself trained a team there to do the work that we're doing in Serbia. And she was well on her way to getting a project like that started in Kosovo when all the violence there broke out. So that's the kind of people that I'm working with in each country, these, these leaders that are not in the papers, but they're really the real leaders.
0: Do you see affinities so or maybe even a convergence, between your work and that of, uh, let's say, Howard Gamby's Institute for Nonviolence Connections there?
1: Well, he invited me to come there and do a training, which I did uh, within the last year. So, yes, we're working it in similar directions. And the Dalai Lama's group, uh, we got to them through uh, Denmark. In Denmark, our team in Denmark uh, is trained uh, people from the Dalai Lama's project. And... uh, They've all received my book, and uh, that's part of the training that they're given now. It
0: strikes me that there's a very strong conversion between the, the notion of compassion, as a Devayama, you know, and, and your notion of the, the, the giraffes, you know.
1: Yes, I think I don't see any differences between us. Uh, in our training, I've integrated a lot from Buddhism. I've integrated a lot from Christianity. I, I was in uh, the village of bet Sahur in uh, Palestine, and at the end of the day one of the young uh, Palestinians said to me, you know, Marshall, I like your training very much, but you know, it's nothing new, this is just applied Islam. And I laughed, and he said, why are you laughing? And I said, yesterday I was in Jerusalem, and David Rosen, an Orthodox rabbi, told me that this was nothing new, it was just applied Judaism. So I feel very good about the fact that people uh, in all of the different religions have seen our training as very supportive, but now the ones that are telling me that are not the ones who would be described as the extremists. They're the ones that might uh, want to do damage to me for even implying that our training is consistent with their their religion. Has,
0: has your work ever put you in a threatening situation, the fact that you're advocating on communication and countries and communities that were, by the very violent conflicts of that a and dangerous impact? For
1: yes, from time to time. However, the people that bring me in take real good care of me. Uh, for example, four times before I went to Burundi for the first time. I had my visa ready, my plane tickets, I was all set to go and my colleague called me up the night before and said, don't come. The time isn't right. So I have people taking real good care of me. But of course, in those places, uh, things can happen. So as you might have noticed in my book, one day I was in a refugee camp in a country that's not too favorably disposed uh, to Americans. And my colleague, when he was introducing me uh, to about 170 people and were amassed to hear who this was being brought in to talk to it in this refugee camp, All he had to do was mention I was an American. And a gentleman jumps up and screams at me, Murderer! And the next thing I know, uh, people are screaming at me, Child killer! Murderer! Uh, The night before, they'd had a riot in this refugee camp, and uh, hundreds of tear gas grenades were shot in. And as I was walking in, I saw on the side of these tear gas grenades made in USA, so I already had known ahead of time these people probably weren't favorably disposed to Americans. So I used our training, I said, with this gentleman, the first one that started to call me a murderer. I said, sir, are you angry because you need a different kind of support from my country than you're getting? He wasn't expecting somebody to be concerned with what was alive in him when he called somebody a murderer. and He was shocked for a moment, and he said, you're darn right. We need housing. We need sewage. We don't need your damn weapons. I said, yes, sir, so you want me to know that when you have needs like that, it's very aggravating when you see weapons being sent. Do you know what it's like to live in a refugee camp like this for 28 years? So you'd like some understanding for how horrible this can be. Anyway, an hour later, he invited me to a Ramadan dinner at his house. Uh, We now have one of our schools in the school in that refugee camp, you see, so Yes, uh, from time to time I'm in front of groups that, uh, for one reason or another, might be angry at my uh, religion or my, uh, my citizenship, uh, and in Sierra Leone, Africa, one time uh, we were in danger for a while until the people could be sure that we weren't on the other side, and, uh, but most of the people who are in danger are my colleagues we're doing heroic work now in Colombia, but that work is being done mostly by my colleague Jorge Rubio. Uh, so, uh, my colleagues are the ones whose lives are really at risk.
0: Have you been able in your own life uh, to chase away, to get rid of it, that jackal energy? And find that takes over?
1: Oh, I, I, I have a lot of it left. I don't think anybody is going to ever in this lifetime get rid of all of it if you've been exposed to the education that I've been and that others are and continue to be. I'm very pleased now if I look at the growth in myself from when I first became aware of how my mind had been shaped by the domination structures. and I'm pleased with the work I've done to liberate myself from that. But One day I went to the Holocaust Museum in uh, Jerusalem on, on Holocaust Day, and I was very moved by that experience. And uh, that afternoon, I was doing some work in a refugee camp in Palestine, and somebody forgot to give me some important information. It was under military curfew. We were supposed to be out of there by 5.30. And so I'm standing out in the streets at 6 o'clock, talking mm-hmm. comfortably with some Palestinians, and all of a sudden we're surrounded by military. And uh, the soldiers are doing something to a friend of mine, a Palestinian friend, is not how I would like people to be treated. And I forgot all about the training I give people, and I went back to my Detroit jackal mentality, and I grabbed this soldier, and I spun him around, and I said, what the hell are you doing to this man? And then the man at least showed equality. He started to abuse me in the way that he had abused my friend. So yes... uh, uh, there's been more than that occasion when uh, I lose it and uh, I get caught up in enemy images and make a mess rather than leave things better off than I find them. Fortunately, that day, I had a Swiss gentleman traveling with me who wanted to learn the process and who had learned it better for me than I was demonstrating it. And in this very messy situation, he stepped between the soldier and me and applied our training. He showed some understanding of this soldier. He saw that this soldier was scared. What a horrible position this soldier was in. And see, I lost this soldier's humanity and the way he was treating my friend, and I made matters worse. So uh, more and more I'm able to keep it together under those conditions. But when I don't, I make a mess. But I try to learn from it then.
0: I did you ever read Nelson Mandela's story of how he...
1: I'd like to hear more about that. How did Not he? With the I've read a lot about Nelson Mandela, but that part I don't know.
0: I think basically uh, he applied that energy, the, the giraffe energy, uh, even that empathy directing it towards the worst, the most racist, the most abusive uh, guards. You know? and after a while the guards were so were stunned that they would be dealt with that, 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 that way that they became friends and they started telling their own stories and their family stories and, and some Kind of Mandela, uh, you know, was was established, and, uh, which also allowed, uh, I guess, uh, Nelson Mandela to be treated as a, on a level of equality. You know? That's probably how he survived those twenty-seven years, uh, so subjected to the worst abuse, you know
1: And I'm also indebted to Nelson Mandela for the contribution he's made to restorative justice, which is, for me, one of the most hopeful things uh, present today in the field of uh, justice. And uh, I've been involved in restorative justice programs in, in a few places. I'll be speaking in England next uh, year to an international conference on restorative justice. And Nelson Mandela has led South Africa to be far ahead in that important arena.
0: We should probably, if you don't mind, the doctor just explain it a little bit. What is
1: restorative justice is a very radical concept because it means instead of punishing people, We need to look at crime in a total context, a total community context. And we need to get the victim and the perpetrator and the community all involved in a healing and a restoration of things to a a place that's good for everybody, and to be conscious that punishing a person is just going to make the society worse. We know this in the United States, for example, that from the history of our, our judicial system, putting people in a prison for a certain act. if you take somebody else the exact same act, they don't go to prison, the person who goes to one of our prisons is much more likely to repeat and act in a violent way when they get out. And it cost us in many states about $25,000 to put a person for a year in prison, so we're spending $25,000 a year to put people in institutions that make matters worse. The only other option we can think of is to do nothing, Well, the principle of restorative justice shows a very human effective alternative. For example, uh, I've been involved in some of these restorative justice programs where I will have a victim, maybe a woman who has been raped, in the same room as the man who raped him. And the first job is for me to help this man empathize with the pain created in the victim, you see. Now, this is a very emotional experience because the victim is very often wanting to scream at this person. Do you know what it's done to my life? etc., etc.? And then it's not easy for this person to hear the suffering. So I'm there to support them to hear it. See? Tell me back what she said. It's too painful. I can't. I'm a rat. Yeah, calling yourself names is too easy. Tell me what she said. I can't. Let me tell you what she said. And then I repeat the suffering. Now I want you to repeat it. Why are you doing this to me? Do it. It's painful to really see the pain we create in other people. It's much easier to just blame them or hate yourself than to really see the horror of what this person has suffered. This might go on for an hour, two hours, until this person feels fully understood. Okay, now, how do you feel when you hear that? I'm a rat! That's too easy, calling yourself names. I want you to tell me how you feel. Go in and tell me how you feel. Don't make me do that, man. Do it. I feel sad. Is that how I want to treat people? See, it's so much easier for them just to hate themselves. They've been taught to hate themselves. Very often they've been in prison three times for the same thing. Hating themselves for doing it hasn't kept them from doing it but to go inside and see what it really feels like not to support life. Next step. Now, what was going on in you when you did it? I told you why I did it. I'm a rat. Too easy to label yourself. I want you to really look inside and see what needs were alive in you when you did it. So we get this person to really be conscious of all that goes on in them when they do that. We get this person then to empathize with that. Now at that point, we have never seen a person who still wants to punish the other person. This person's healing is going to take place much more when this interaction has taken place than if we kill this person. You see? So that's a, an aspect of restorative justice, this kind of work in the prisons, rather than just making this person hate themselves and then getting out on the streets.
0: Archbishop Tutu in his own way has tried to, to, to create that kind of process uh, with the you know, Committee for Truth and Reconciliation in, in South Africa. That's,
1: yes, that's what I was referring to earlier, that he and Nelson Mandela have really led the way internationally on this. And and you've probably seen the videos that have come out. I haven't yet, but my colleagues have given me some and I just haven't been around a, a, a recorder to see it. They told me about those films and I'm really thrilled that uh, that we're making this known, because uh, as long as we're punishing people, we're going to have a violent society.
0: Did you use film, actually, in your training? Uh,
1: I used to do it a lot more when I wasn't moving around so much. I used to film families and I would just show them from the film how they're communicating. And they could just see why they were having the problems and uh, and we're talking now about the use of your media as really where our hopes for the future are. For example, uh, we have a, a demonstration project of a, an entertainment show for children in which the hero is a nine-year-old girl who has a Mr. Giraffe puppet. And with this Mr. Giraffe puppet, it has magical powers to put giraffe ears on her friends so her friends can feel what it's like to have giraffe ears on and All of the children that we have shown this program to, they love it. So we would really like to get sponsors for such a program in which we could show kids something else beside what they learn, as you well know, that two hours a night, they're watching television the most. In 75% of the programs, the hero either kills somebody or beats them up. So we're perpetuating this heroic image that uh, the good life is good guys punishing bad guys. And as long as that's the world that we educate children to, I'm afraid we're going to continue to have violence. So yes, we want to learn how to use the media and television a lot more. Uh, we've just sampled it. I made a couple of videotapes that have done wonders in getting our projects out to the world. But I want to get it over the, the national media. I think probably in one hour we could do more work than takes us six years now in, in these countries.
0: One last question, Doctor. Can you think of a great instance of giraffe empathy that you would
1: share with I like the fact that that's such a hard question to ask because if you follow me around in my work you would hear just how many of these I hear every day and, and in all levels. Uh, but maybe one that what, uh, I mentioned in my book, it's a good example, was a woman in Toronto, Canada who works for a uh, uh, drug detoxification uh, unit and two days after our training a young man comes in off the street and uh, he's obviously been on drugs and he says I want a room so the w- woman on charge that night starts to explain to him that they're filled up and she was going to help him find an address of another place he might try But the next thing she knew, she's laying on her back. He's sitting across her chest with a knife at her throat, saying, don't lie to me. You do too have a room. I said to her, what did you do? She said, I did what you trained us to do. I I connected empathically with what was alive in him. I said, you remembered to do it under those conditions? (laughs) Then she said something interesting. She said, what choice did I have? I guess desperation can make uh, good listeners out of us all. And she said, you know, Marshall, what really helped? I said, what? That stupid joke you told. I said, what stupid joke? Remember when you said, never put your butt in the face of an angry jackal? Oh, I said, yes, I tell that joke a lot. Well, I was about to say to him, but I don't have a room. I was going to try to explain rather than empathize with it. And uh, so what did you say? Oh, I said, first let me tell you why I remembered that, that joke stayed with me, because just a short time before, my mother and I were having our weekly conversation in which she was telling me, I've got to get rid of the job, it's too dangerous. And I said, but mother, it's my life. And my mother said, I could kill you when you say but like that. So I thought afterwards, Marshall, that if I had said but to this man, but I don't have a room, if my mother wants to kill me when I say that, what would he have done with a knife at my throat? But instead, I remember what you taught us to connect with what was alive in the other person. And when he said, you do too have a room. Don't lie to me. I said, are you angry and, and need to be told the truth? You're darn right. I may be an addict, but blasted, I'm going to get respect. You understand that? So, sir, you're tired of not getting respect and you have a need for respect and you're going to get it one way or the other. I said, and how long did you listen to him empathically in that way? Oh, she said, about another 10 minutes. Oh, I said, you must have been petrified. She said, no, I wasn't, Marshall, because I could see after the second message what you've told us, that it's when people need empathy the most that it's the scariest to give it to them sometimes. But I could just see how hungry he was to have somebody hear what was alive in him. So after 10 minutes, he could finally hear me when I told him I was scared and I'd really like him to get up off of me then he allowed me to call him a cab and give him an address to another place. I called him up and told him to take caution. I said, wow, you've really mastered the empathic connection if you can do it under those conditions. What are you doing back here for some more training? She said, now I need you to help me with a harder situation. I said, a harder situation than that? What could it be? She said, now I want you to teach me how to do this with my mother. But we see this quite a bit in our training. We can be working with police, teaching them how to go into very dangerous circumstances, making empathic connections with people. They'll come to our next session and say, oh, it really works great, Marshal. You're right, it's more powerful than going in with a weapon. But now teach me how to do it with my 15-year-old son. I think to you, I can't help thinking that the
0: Tibetans would, would need you to... Uh
1: Get the to I hope someday I get a chance to contribute to that. Uh, I have every hope in the world that if we could get the people, as I said, into a room, we have the time to get them to connect at the heart level. I don't care how many centuries a conflict has been going on. I'm really confident we'll find a way to get everybody's needs met. The big problem is actually getting them into the room. As I said earlier in the story about my colleague in Nigeria, it took him six months going to each side listening to them when they said, you can't talk to these people. The only language they know is violence. So he had to listen to their skepticism, hear their fear. It took six months before finally they would listen to him and at least give us one day. So if we can get these people together and connect them at this level, I'm, I'm confident we can find a way to get everybody's needs met, even when there's complicated Issues involved like land and water uh, that are behind all the political issues. Um, I'm convinced that most schoolchildren could solve the problems that lead nations to war. They're not that complicated. If you could just get everybody's needs on the table, see what the resources are, most schoolchildren could resolve the conflict. The big problem is getting the human connection necessary for the resolution to take place.